From Washington, D.C., this is the Korean American Perspectives, a new podcast presented to you by the Council of Korean Americans. Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives podcast, where we explore the triumphs and challenges of the Korean American experience and examine different sides of complex issues that shape our community. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy this episode. This is Abraham Kim, your host of the Korean American Perspectives podcast. You can't talk about the Korean American community without talking about spirituality and faith. For many of us growing up in an immigrant Korean American family, we probably went to church or was part of some spiritual community. These religious institutions frequently served as the bedrock that grounded our neighborhoods and Korean American immigrant society. Not only was the church the spiritual center, but often the center of social life for immigrant families in this foreign land, as well as a community center that provided essential services to struggling homes. I remember in my own life growing up in Los Angeles during the 1980s, my pastor was not just a clergyman, but also served as a family counselor, a social worker, and a language interpreter among many other jobs. The pastor, the priest, the rector, and other clergy leaders served a critical role in the health and welfare of the Korean American immigrant community. But no doubt, as a profession, it was a tough and taxing job. I think that's why many people say going into the ministry is a calling rather than a profession. My guest today, Reverend Eugene Cho, as a 1.5 generation Korean American, chose the path of serving God and his community as an evangelical pastor. This ministry journey he took, however, was not easy. To begin with, his first-generation parents were not initially enthusiastic about his career choice. Then, as a pastor, he and his family went through some dark days, including living through poverty and deep uncertainty as he struggled to start a church in Seattle during a major recession. Despite these hardships, he and his life partner and wife remained committed to the ministry and their calling to Seattle to establish what later became Quest Church. The church eventually became one of the most dynamic ministries in the Seattle area. Eugene later went on to also found a global nonprofit helping people around the world in extreme poverty called One Day's Wages. He authored two books. And most recently, Eugene was named as the new president of the global advocacy group to stop hunger called Bread of the World. He starts this new role on July 2020. Before he takes on his new role as president for this organization, I'm fortunate to get a moment with Eugene Cho to reflect on his life journey, the Christian faith, humanitarian work, and politics. I hope you enjoy. We welcome all of you to the Korean American Perspective podcast. I'm so honored to be here with our guest, uh, Eugene Cho. Eugene, uh, who's currently sitting in Seattle while I'm here in Washington, D.C. area. Well, welcome, Eugene. Thank you so much. It's a joy and pleasure to spend some time with you and the, the CKA community. I've been looking forward to this conversation and so thrilled to have you. So, um, Eugene, let's let's start from the very beginning. Um, 
I understand you were born in Korea, but your your family immigrated to the United States when you were very young. Uh, share with our audience about your immigration uh, experience. Sure. Um, well, my parents were both born in what is now called North Korea. They have a story of their own where they had to flee down south, experienced a lot of poverty, uh, even persecution, being believers or Christians at that time. But uh, my parents, who weren't able to uh, experience some of the luxuries or access to education that uh, I've experienced, it was really important for them to have their kids go to school. It's a very common immigration story, as you're aware of. But I was six years old when we got on an airplane and we immigrated directly to San Francisco, uh, California. And just a couple interesting parts of that story is that my parents, in their infinite wisdom, decided not to tell me that we were moving. My brothers were aware of this. I'm the youngest of three sons. And so it was a shock when I got on an airplane for the very first time and then to, and then to discover at the airport that we were leaving. And um, thus began our story as Korean Americans. Hmm. So uh, from there, you graduated high school and you chose UC Davis to study um, for college. What did you study at UC Davis? Uh, I double majored. I majored in psychology and theater psychology to uh, trick my parents into believing that I was going to go pre-med. And then theater, because when I was a high school student, um, I chose to do something that I considered to be the scariest thing in my life. I was really, uh, uh, I struggled with stuttering when I was growing up. I also struggled with just fear of people. I think growing up as an immigrant, being bullied, being laughed at because of my accent, because of stuttering, because of numerous things, I was voted the shyest kid in my middle school in sixth grade. And so by the time I got to high school, I was just so afraid of people. But I also realized that I needed to confront that biggest fear. And so I auditioned for a play in high school. It was called Midsummer Night's Dream by Shakespeare. I was cast as the wall. I think I had two lines. Uh, I still believe I was the most compelling wall ever. Uh, but as a result of that one audition, it... Um, kind of opened up my sense of confidence. And I really wanted to explore more about the arts and creativity and public speaking. And so I chose to double major at UC Davis. So um, so was your intent to become uh, an actor or a performer? Yeah, that's a good question. I maybe, but I found out very quickly in college that while I thought I was good in high school, uh, the competition uh, was just radically different uh, at UC Davis. And I think at that level, you begin to realize that in high school, they're trying to give people uh, a variety of parts and opportunities. Uh, and that wasn't the same case in college. Um, all along, I think I was still intending to become a doctor. You know, my parents had a very, very stern consistent speech that they gave to my brothers and I ever since we immigrated. My oldest brother was uh, ordained by my parents to become an engineer. My middle brother was ordained to become a lawyer or a business person. And I was uh, ordained by my parents to become a doctor. Uh, and so both my brothers did what they were called to do. They were good sons, if you will. 
and I was planning on becoming a doctor, but uh, plans changed sometime in college. <laughs> tell, tell me about the change. Uh, I imagine you were, that's when you decided to go into the ministry. Um, <laughs> tell me about that journey. Yeah, right. I mean, I'm still chuckling about it because, you know, now it, it's it's such a good feeling to be able to look back at your life and chuckle and laugh a little bit because at that moment, as a third year college student, I still remember calling my parents uh, over the landline phone and telling them that I was uh, that I had decided what I wanted to become, and they were shocked that I even said that because. The arrangement was that I was supposed to become a doctor. And for those who might speak Korean, I, I, I basically called and I said, I've decided what I want to become. And I still remember my mom responding with the answer to my statement. She said, a doctor, as if it was there was no room for discussion. And I said, no. And I eventually shared with her that I wanted to become a a pastor, a minister. And I still remember maybe about three, four minutes of just dead silence over the phone. All I heard was her breathing very heavily. uh, And I was very scared because she was kind of that uh, tiger mom disciplinarian of our family. Um, And it was a hard decision. uh, But I was so convicted that I graduated college a year early in three years and then eventually made my way across the country uh, to start my theological studies at Princeton Theological Seminary. But there was a lot of uh, pain in that decision because now I don't blame my parents, but back then I didn't quite understand why they couldn't support me. But I think for them, their best expression of love for me was to help me succeed uh, with opportunities that they did not have. And I think their understanding of a pastor didn't correlate with what they had hoped for me in my life. By being a doctor, it meant being successful and being able to help others and being able to have food on the table for our family and and onward. Uh, And so it's trained our relationship for a couple of years. When did they come to accept your career choice? Was this many years afterwards or... um... Oh, man, this is, uh, you know, even when I was a student at Princeton Seminary, my father would call me every now and then and say, you know, I forgive you. Even right now, if you decide to become a doctor, I promise you I'll pay for everything. Um, But for the first two years, you know, uh, it was very strained and I was kind of on my own and they would check in on me every now and then. Um. But I think eventually over time, I can't quite identify what year it was, but I think over time, they began to realize that uh, it wasn't just a a trend or a fad that I was going through, but it was coming from a very deep place. And it was a synthesis of not just spirituality, but a spirituality that really wanted to have a robust impact on culture, on community, on, on the world. And I think they began to see that and also be inspired by it. Uh, I will say that even right now, uh, my parents live about four miles away from me here in Seattle. But even right now, I think there's still a part of them that still wants me to be a doctor because the way that they describe me to their friends is they say, this is Eugene, he's a pastor, uh, which means he's a doctor for the human soul. Like they can't, 
they can't give up on that word doctor. And so I, I find it very comical, but also very encouraging because they're very supportive now and have for many years been a member of the church that I used to pastor. How about your brothers? Did any of your brothers uh, meet the dreams and hopes of your parents? Uh, they did. And I hate them very much. Uh, I still have some uh, counseling and therapy that I need to receive. No, all joking aside, you know, I, I really do admire my brothers. They've gone through their ups and downs as well. Uh, you could say, if I'm being honest, you could say that our family was like a poster child family uh, to other folks in the Korean community in San Francisco or in the church that we belong to. But I think if you were to peel off the layers of our family, there was uh, woundedness and hardship and pain and financial struggle and 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 all the whole the whole experience. I feel like uh, were realities in our lives. But I was also really inspired to see my brothers endure through so much and yet persevere and pursue uh, some of their dreams. Not just for the sake of honoring parents, but I think. Uh, in their desire to honor um, their calling, their gifts and passions as well. So is Princeton Theological Seminary where you met your wife, Minhee? Yeah, actually it wasn't. Uh, I met my wife in Korea. Mm. Uh, my program at Princeton was a three-year program. It's called a Master's of Divinity. And two years into my studies, I decided to take some time off and I wanted to go back to Korea. I really hadn't been back except for one visit when I was in middle school. And I wanted to go back because I think as in my early to mid-20s, I really wanted to rediscover my identity, my language, my culture, my roots, if you will. And I felt like I was in a better state of mind as a 20-plus-year-old. And so I decided to go back to Korea, arrange to do an internship at a church in Korea, and it was a phenomenal, life-changing, transformative experience. Was able to reacquaint myself, as I had hoped, with language and culture and some of the family that I had left when we immigrated when I was six years old. I did not uh, envision that I would also meet my wife there. Uh, because I'm a Korean-American, uh, English is my dominant or, or preferred language. Uh, to meet someone in Korea who obviously knew some English, but Korean being her dominant language. And so I met my wife, Minhee, during the last week that I was in Korea. I finally had the guts to ask her out in my broken best version of my Korean drama voice. And we had five very intense dates on my last week in Korea. And then we began a long distance relationship right when the internet started to come into mainstream. Mm. So how, how did you know that she was the one? I didn't. Uh, you know, uh, I didn't. I, you know, I, there are some that I'll meet that uh, use that kind of language or that kind of paradigm. Like I knew this person was the one right when I saw him or her. And that wasn't the case for me or for her. Uh, we engaged in a long distance relationship when phone calls were $1.20 a minute. Uh, it's shocking to think about that there was a time in our lifetime when we would pay. I still remember the first telephone bill that we received after we started dating. This was when everything was cute and giddy over the phone. We were arguing about who was going to hang up first, things like that. 
Uh, we were praying together on the phone. And after we received our first phone bill collectively, it was over $1,000. Her parents were upset. I was a grad school student. I didn't have any money. I remember joking with her, you know what? Uh, you pray on your own. I'll pray on my own. We're only going to talk twice a week, maybe 10, 15 minutes at a time. And it had to be between 9 p.m. and 1 a.m., which was when there was discount calls with AT&T a uh, long time ago. So we wrote letters. I still have hundreds of letters that I sent and hundreds of letters that I received. And so we didn't know each other. And so there was uh, just a, a lot of time. Uh, I think we were dating for about 12, 13 months of uh, trying to learn and discern, not just about who the other person was, but I think if I'm honest, I was still discovering who I was in my 20s as well. So how did meeting a, what I'm assuming she was a Korean Korean and you're a Korean American going to Korea to rediscover your identity, you had this amazing experience. Um, I'm wondering how that made you a different person when you came back from Korea. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think we are a sum of the many experiences that we had. And so while I might not necessarily be able to give you a precise, systematic answer, hey, here's the five or six things that I uh, was impacted or changed, I do know that I'm a summation. I'm a uh, uh, a synthesis of my immigration, of my years in San Francisco, and then my experience for about two years going back in my 20s to, again, reacquaint myself with culture and language and family. It was very transformative. But you know, I think a couple things do come to mind when I think about how I was impacted by my time there. I think it was just more of a sense of peace and joy about my identity as a Korean American. When I was growing up in the States, one of the most painful comments or uh, basically slurs, if uh, you will, that I heard was hearing from people go back home. And that just always confused me because no matter what I did or how much I accomplished, no matter how well I did in school, I realized that for many people, I would never be seen or accepted as truly American. Hmm. And then in middle school, I did actually go back to Korea and I was so excited to go back. Um, but what was so shocking and uh, caused great confusion was when I went back to Korea thinking I'm finally home, I actually heard that exact same statement from native Koreans to go back home. So when I came back, middle school and high school were very turbulent, confusing, angry years for me. I can't speak for other Korean Americans and their immigration story, but I know for myself, there were some really dark, confusing, painful times and I really began to ask myself about identity. Like, who am I? Where do I fit? Where do I belong? And so I think in my 20s, a little more mature to be able to go back, I think I began to get a sense of peace and joy about my identity as a Korean American, that I didn't see that as a deficiency, but I really saw that as a gift to be able to see the beauty and difficulties of both cultures and to have the ability to synthesize the good of both cultures into my 
bicultural identity as a Korean American. And then certainly not just identity, but things of that culture. I began to become more reacquainted with language, with cultural customs that I had forgotten. And it was actually very emotional um, to the point that even now, whenever I fly back to Korea, and I go back to Korea once or twice a year, just as I did in middle school and in my early 20s, I always cry when I land. There's just something about landing. And it, there's a word that I'm sure you're familiar with, but for those that might not quite know this word, it's the word koyang, which means um, hometown. And there's just something about the fact that as a Korean American, there's a connectedness and rootedness with the land of Korea that will never be taken away from me. Yeah, I mean, as I'm listening to you, you know, we we feel a part of, I guess, our homeland or where the home of our parents or our home, Koyang. And also we feel home here as well, but not fully 100% a part of each. And so we're almost living in a third culture, right? Because we're, like you said, a hybrid. Right. And so uh, I've heard some people call it, you know, we're living in the kimchi taco culture, right? Because we're <laughs> it's a fusion of, of different kinds of uh of culture the you know the best and 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 sometimes not not the best of things from both culture but yet it's a part of us and we're blended together so that's uh i think your feelings are very uh widely shared among folks in our community so you so you graduated from uh princeton seminary in 1997 and i imagine you got married soon after that correct that's right. So I, I married my wife near the end of my seminary years. Okay. And I got married in Korea in February 1997, came back. Mm-hmm. And by that time, I, had, I was done with my studies, but I stayed for a few months to wrap up and walk for graduation. Uh, just one thing that I'll just say about graduation is one of my biggest regrets, uh, biggest regrets as a, as a son, uh, as a child of my parents is that because I graduated college early and because there was some strain in my relationship with my parents, I decided not to walk during college graduation. And to this day, it's one of my biggest regrets because I was so selfish. I didn't realize how much that meant for my parents. So when I chose not to graduate, to rob them of the joy of seeing their youngest son go through graduation. And so when I graduated from Princeton, I was done by then. I didn't have to stick around, but it was because I really wanted to give them the opportunity uh, to come to Princeton, uh, to attend the graduation ceremony in our very beautiful cathedral. And shortly after that, uh, my wife and I got into our car with the few belongings that we had, drove cross country back to the West Coast into the Pacific Northwest uh, to Seattle, Washington. So um, why did you choose um, Seattle, Washington? Um, because in 2001, you founded your church, uh, Quest Church, right. your pre- and you chose Seattle, Washington, not back to San Francisco. Why did you choose Seattle as a location? Uh, you know, I wonder if Sleepless in Seattle had an impact with my decision. I have no idea. I, mean, I really don't quite know. I mean, as a as a pastor, and I know not everyone in the audience uh, might understand when I say, you know, um, when I talk about spirituality, but 
I'd like to think that we prayed and got some sort of a direction uh, in our relationship with God. But I don't quite know, to be honest with you. I didn't feel like going back to San Francisco was an option uh, because I made a lot of mistakes during those angry, confusing years that I mentioned earlier. We don't have to go into the details, but I made a lot of poor decisions. And I didn't think that I could go back to San Francisco to do ministry there because of those decisions. Uh, but there was just something, I think, about Seattle culture. Um, Seattle is known for its kind of a, uh, hipsterness, its grunginess, its, its anti-establishment sense, if you will. It's a hybrid of lots of different things. Uh, but there was an opportunity to come to Seattle uh, and to be a part of an English ministry at a Korean-American church. And so we went to the suburbs and we started an EM, an English ministry at a Korean American church and did that for three years. It was one of the fastest growing churches in the West Coast. Uh, but after three years, um, as much as we tried, we realized uh, that this church was beautiful. The English ministry is beautiful. It's still d- doing and going very, very well. But I realized that in the long run, what I wanted to be a part of as a Korean American who fully embraces and has peace and joy in my identity, that I also wanted to be a part, a catalyst in becoming part of a multi-ethnic, multicultural church that really cared about not just identity and justice issues that impacted Korean Americans, but also impacted the larger culture as well. And that's why we uh, started and founded Quest Church in 2001. So I, I imagine that was uh, not an easy decision uh, because uh, I, re- I recall you telling stories about um, starting that church, and really, um, it was uh, it was a difficult time for you uh, during the initial months, year, I imagine, of starting a new church. Tell me about that period of time. No, it was really challenging and it was humbling. Um, Maybe like others, I had a plan. I had an Excel sheet of what I wanted to do. I had a formula. I had people and connections and network. And uh, for whatever reason, nearly every single one of the hopes and plans that we had for the church in the beginning just didn't come to fruition. The market crashed at that time. People that were wanting to give and invest in our church no longer could do it. And the next thing uh, I knew, I realized that I needed to get a job. I had left our previous church and found out very quickly that a master's of divinity degree was kind of useless to the larger society. People didn't quite know what to do with me. I couldn't get a job at Burger King, McDonald's, Kentucky Fried Chicken, Starbucks. And uh, it was a challenging time. Eventually, my wife and I, we were on food stamps here in Seattle, Uh, We were uh, uh, participating in a program called WIC, uh, Women, Infants, and Children, which is a safety net for those who are going through difficult times. We were going through state insurance programs, again, which we're really grateful for. That's part of our story, and I'm sure we'll get to it later, but what's led me to kind of the work that I'm doing right now. Uh, So for about a year, I finally landed a job. And I was working as a janitor at a Barnes and Noble store in a suburb in Seattle. And then it was a very difficult time. I think had you and I been having this podcast uh, at that time, it would have been a very angry, very cynical uh, conversation. But as I look back now, I learned a lot 
I uh, learned a lot about character, about perseverance, about tenacity. And um, it's been, again, one of those marker experiences that continues to shape my life even today. You must have had perhaps some regret as well, wondering why did you ever question God in terms of was this the right path that you were supposed to take? Was there any self-doubt during that period for you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, when I worked at, as a janitor, I was there from six to nine in the morning at about a 40,000 square foot bookstore. And I'm there by myself along with maybe one manager and two employees that early in the morning. And what else do you do when you're vacuuming, cleaning toilets, dusting, except to wrestle with God? I was uh, angry. I had some choice words. I said some things that I probably can't say for this distinguished podcast, but it was good and honest and real and vulnerable. Uh, but yes, there were moments when I doubted not only God, but doubted, um, am I making the right decision? Uh, during this time, you know, both our respective parents on both sides of our family questioned the wisdom in planting a new church while my wife was pregnant with our second child. Um, and it was a, a very difficult time, for sure. There's no doubt about it. Um, but I'm, again, really grateful for the handful of friends that came along, grateful for our parents that, uh, despite some of the questions or the I told you so, still remained supportive. Hmm. And I'm grateful for the fact that uh, my wife, even though uh, we never envisioned being on food stamps during that time, we learned uh, our marriage got even closer uh, and tighter as a result of the circumstances that we were going through. You implied that this this experience during these uh, difficult year, couple of years, um, really shaped you as as you looked ahead uh, to what was to come. Uh, and that was the uh, founding of One Day's Wages, um, a grassroots organization and movement to fight extreme global poverty. T- tell me about that journey. How did you uh, establish this organization? You know, for me, as a, as a, a Christian, as a Christ follower, um, I really care not just about people going to church or attending services, but more importantly, I really care about the ethics, about the compassion, mercy, and justice that I believe is embodied in the person and the message uh, of of Jesus Christ. And again, I'm not suggesting uh, and trying to use this platform to to preach to people by any means. But I think if there is a common ground for people of different faiths and views to gather together around, it's about what does it mean to be a good neighbor. And as I really began to explore what it meant, what it means to be a good neighbor, I I was so captivated by Jesus's compassion and conviction about those who were particularly marginalized and vulnerable in culture and society, the orphans, the widows, women, children, uh, and it continues onward. And so as I began to explore that, and I began to explore more about the history of Christianity in Korea, uh, even though it's not perfect, I began to realize how early on it was these uh, Christian missionaries that would partner with indigenous Korean leaders uh, to do beautiful, compassionate 
merciful, just things in Korean culture and society. Establish hospitals and orphanages and schools and be on the streets to protest uh, the illegal occupation of Japan and the list goes on. And then to learn more about my, my personal family story, to learn about my parents and their experience with hunger and refugee camps and, and what have you. I don't know if I shared this story with you, A, but you know, my, my father just two years ago shared with me for the very first time, he's 84 now, so that when he was 82 years old, he finally shared with me that he had spent some months at a refugee camp separated from his family during the time of the Korean War. And when I asked him why he had never shared that story with me, he uh, quibbled a little bit. He was very emotional and he just shared some things are very, are just too emotional and traumatic to share. Uh, and so I think for me, the, my point is just learning more about what they went through, having to pull out grass on occasion from the ground to eat it because they were just so hungry and dealing with hunger pangs. Um, I feel that much has been given to our family. Uh, and because of my faith, I'm inspired to give back. And I want to continue to give back. And I want to inspire others uh, to not just think about our own success, our own um, platforms, but how, again, we give voice and agency and empowerment to others. So the the concept of one day's wage is 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 unique and and rather risky. Um, uh, it's one hundred percent donations, uh, I guess, minus credit card fees, goes toward particular charities that are curated and vetted by uh, by the one day's wages um, uh, organization. Um, why why did you pick this kind of a platform? Was there was there an inspiration behind this or uh, what drove you to take this kind of a model? Sure. Well, you know, one day's wages, we started this about now, about almost 11 years ago. I was on a trip uh, to Myanmar, otherwise known as Burma. And I was on this trip and along with some other leaders, we wanted to learn to connect some dots with the research that I was doing for some writing projects. And there's something about seeing certain things in the flesh, uh, in real time with your own eyes. And I was visiting a makeshift classroom in the jungles in Burma. And there was a group of ethnic people called the Karin people that were fleeing away jungle to jungle uh, because they were fleeing away from this military government that was basically there to eradicate them. And when I was at this particular jungle, I visited a makeshift classroom. And in this classroom, I learned that teachers of these classrooms, teaching first to fifth graders, their income, their salary was 40 US dollars. And it wasn't per day, it wasn't per week, it wasn't per month, it was per year. That experience just really rocked my world. And then to be able to see people that have been impacted by war or by landmines and what have you. So we came back from this experience and my wife and I decided to discuss and pray and just kind of imagine how could we participate? How could we help in some way or the other? And again, as people of faith, we spend some time in prayer and we were convicted to give up a year's wages. 
And back then, you know, we were a one-income family. As a pastor, I was making $68,000 a year. We didn't have that lying around in a bank or under our mattress. And so we engaged in a three-year journey, a three-year process of saving as much as we could, of simplifying our lives and selling things that we didn't need. And during this time, uh, we felt like we were inspired by this idea called One Day's Wages. And we asked friends and family um, that as we gave one year's wages, would you consider joining us uh, by giving one day's wages, at least once a year, maybe once a month or once a quarter. And uh, amazingly, uh, hundreds and then eventually thousands of people around the world decided to join in. Now, the reason why we committed to this model of 100% Uh, It's because we know that we live in a world today where people are increasingly skeptical and cynical about charities, about philanthropy, about organizations. I think some of it is legitimate and others is just because we're living in a more hyper cynical culture. And we wanted to remove that from the formula. We wanted to just tell people that when you decide to give 100% go directly into carefully vetted projects or specific projects that you can pick on our website. Uh, And so for me, as an executive director, uh, part of my job is to fundraise for our operations and administration. And then we host one event every single year, our One Day's Wages Gala, where our Seattle supporters really rally around and help underwrite our operation costs the entire year. If, if uh, running a nonprofit like One Day's Wages was enough, you also are you've, you're a prolific writer and you've written um, two books. Uh, the first one's called Overrated. Um, are we more in love with the idea of changing the world than actually changing the world? What inspired you to write this book? You know, that book is a confession. It's not a book at all about uh, an expert or a guru talking about change. It's really a confession that I share about how uh, it was so tempting for me to be enamored by wanting to do good things, good ideas, good intentions, good words, good sermons, good speeches. But I realized that my pushback was when there was a cost to me, when there was actually sacrifices that I needed to make in my life. And I think if we're honest, that can be uh, part of the temptation, the seduction of our world today, where we can be obsessed by how we appear to other people. I think social media is a classic example of being more concerned by how we appear to other people. And so I mostly, nearly every single person that I meet wants to do something to make their communities and their cities and their nation and the world a better place to live. We should affirm it, but we should also name that there are challenges, there's a cost to pursuing those things. And so that book seeks to name some of those things and how we can push through and be tenacious in our pursuits. So what do you... What do you propose or recommend people who want to push through? What, what are some, some things that we should be doing? You know, a couple of things that I can just share. Um, you know, there's obviously a lot more that I write about in the book, but a couple of things that I would just share from the get-go is that we can never do it alone. 
the idea of the Lone Ranger, the whole hero complex, the white savior or the Asian savior complex. We can't do it alone. There's something beautiful and compelling about partnering and collaborating with other people. I think I think CKA is a beautiful example of that. It's this idea that is an island to themselves. While you and I, Abe, are individuals, we have our unique stories when we collaborate and pull together and come together. And as CKA comes together with other women and men in different seasons of their lives, college students and younger professionals and people that have been around the block a few times, we can accomplish so much more by mutual encouragement, by pulling in our resources, our think tanking, our ideation, and the list goes on. That would be one. I think the second thing that I would just share for the sake of this podcast is we need to go deep in our knowledge about something. Sometimes I feel like our news cycle moves so quickly that before you know it, people move on from one epidemic or one concern or one disaster to another. And there's, we, we don't give ourselves enough time to learn and to dig in and to kind of wrestle with the complexities and nuances of the various challenges that confront our world. And so there's something about, if, we're, if we care about something, we owe it to ourselves the people that we're wanting to empower and come alongside and learn from. And we also owe that subject to become an expert on that subject. We might not necessarily become PhDs, but I think we need to really dig in. So those are the two things that I would just share um, in addition to numerous other things I share in the book. Do you feel like this first book was in some ways, uh, your second book is a follow-up to this book? You, you wrote a second book a couple of years later called Thou Shall Not Be a Jerk, A Christian's Guide to Engaging Politics. Uh, it, it's, it seems absolutely an appropriate book given the time uh, we live in, uh, but a rather risky book too, I would, I would say, uh, to write uh, in these times. Um, why did you write this book? Was this a follow-up from the last book or is this something that you completely had something that you wanted to write about? I, I mean, I think it's somewhat connected uh, and it's also a standalone book, but I mean, it's connected in the sense that it flows from uh, the authenticity of my imperfect story in life. Um, you know, I think the books that I write, the talks that I give, I want it to be an authentic expression of my imperfect life. And this book certainly is it. When you ask the question, why did I write this book? I could say jokingly, I'm a masochist. I like pain because I've gotten my share of criticism uh, left and right from lots of people. Uh, you know, I recently wrote or did an interview with the Washington Post about President Trump's usage of the terminology Chinese virus. I mean, that's probably a different podcast in itself, but I got thousands of emails and thousands of comments on that column and on my Twitter feed and such. But it's really because, you know, I want to be able to contribute to a more healthy, a more flourishing, a more just, a more compassionate. And then certainly as a Christian uh, in a, a culture that more reflects the heart and character of Jesus Christ. Now, not everybody might agree with my views or thoughts, and that's okay. But as you and I discussed uh, at a meeting a few months ago, you know, we talked about how, how challenging it is 
that it's not just people bringing their respective views together, but there's a, a loss of civility, a loss of respect, a loss of just basic human decency and kindness. And as a result, uh, it is uh, causing a great divide and polarization in our culture, uh, in our nation, and really all around the world. Do you have any recommendations or suggestions? If 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 some heads of state came to you and said, you you know, Pastor Cho, uh, we want to we want to change the culture. What would you what would you suggest people? What would you advise these leaders to do? Right. You know, uh, easier said than done. And, and I say this in the book. Every I write 10 commandments. One of them is thou shalt not be a jerk. So there's 10 thou shalt whatever. Uh, and I go through 10 of these things. And I will admit, easier said than done. But over my years, I've had conversations with uh, and sometimes meals with our city mayors, our city council, with governors. I've had uh, three opportunities to go to the White House to meet with presidents uh, in past administrations. It's something that I really care about because I believe that politics matter. Sometimes there are some people, whether they're Christian or not, that feel like politics is too messy, it doesn't matter. And I would love to take this moment to tell anyone who's listening, politics matter because they inform policies that impact human people. And oftentimes, people that are um, kind of on the margins, people that are forgotten, people that might not have their voice heard in the larger choir of a noisy culture. So a couple suggestions that I would share, and hopefully I'd love to encourage people uh, to check out this book. But two things come to mind. Uh, Number one would be, that I think we've lost the art of um, listening. I know it's not rocket science, but the art of listening, even to those who may have differing views than we do. Uh, in the book, I talk about the story of a, um, a movement called MADA, which stands for Make America Dinner Again. And coincidentally, two Asian-American women in the Bay Area were so distraught by the results of the last presidential election that after their emotions subsided, they were just confused. And they wanted to have a meal with some of their friends that voted for President Trump. And to their credit, they realized that as they were examining themselves and their social circles, they realized They didn't know a single person that voted for President Trump. And in some ways, I think that's part of the challenge of our world is that we're basically placing ourselves in silos, in echo chambers, where we're surrounding ourselves with people that look like us, think like us, feel like us, worship like us, and vote like us. So when we're talking about loving our neighbors or listening to our neighbors, it's kind of an inaccurate description perspective. And so they uh, decided to invite through social media, share their story and said, would you be willing, if you voted for President Trump, have dinner with us, we'll gather people of different circles, different backgrounds, Uh, we'll all bring us a, 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 a plate, a dish to share, and let's just talk about our views on different perspectives. And that has spurred a global movement. Uh, There's 
MATA chapters all around the country. And contextually, this has also changed in other places around the world. I went to my local Seattle Make America Dinner Again uh, chapter for a dinner, and it was um, intense. It was hard. It was challenging. Um, we didn't solve anything and thing. We didn't solve, solve gun control or resolve the national debt budget. But I think there's something about a commitment to say, I want to be able to listen to you and to have a better perspective where someone else is coming from. Um, I think the other one is that, uh, that my book isn't a license for us to be passive, to be soft, uh, to be... Um, Deferential, it means that while we're still respectful and gracious and civil, we should still contend for uh, convictions and passions that really matter to us, especially as they deal with those within our larger society who are often forgotten or not seen. I want to shift gears a little bit here uh, and, and back to your life. Um, after after being with your church for 17, after 17 years on September, 2018, uh, you did decide to step down from Quest Church and there was some media coverage around this. Um, tell me about that journey and how you came to that decision. One of the hardest decisions of my life. Uh, we love our church. Uh, my wife and I having planted that church in the year 2000, uh, we labored sweat and tears for 18 years. Our children were born at the church. It's probably not the best analogy, but uh, Quest Church felt like a fourth baby to us. So it was a really hard decision. But the two things that factored into our thought and our decision-making is that my wife and I always envisioned that when a time came, and if a time came, that we wanted it to be done when the church was at its healthiest when it was experiencing its most flourishing as a community. And we felt this was the right time. A few years ago, we helped the church move into the largest Protestant building, finish the capital campaign. There was no debt, an amazing staff, uh, one of the largest and influential churches in Seattle. And so we felt really encouraged by the momentum and the things that were going on. But the second thing that I realized, and this was hard for me to admit, but I realized that I was holding the church back. I was um, scattered in so many places. I was writing, I was speaking, I was encouraging leaders around the world. I was traveling a lot. I was engaged with one day's wages. And I realized that I was holding the church back and decided to fire myself. And... Um, that was really the reason why we made that decision. There was some risk involved because we have two kids that are in college right now so to give up a full-time job. But we also sensed that in the next chapter, I'm not quite sure what that was going to be because we had no idea, uh, but we felt like God was calling us to trust Him and to enter into this new chapter, a new season uh, with, with open hands. Hmm. So... Uh, from this, uh, how important do you think it is uh, uh, for leaders to learn how to step down or step away? Is there is there a lesson for leaders that you would like to encourage? You know, uh, there is. And I think uh, 
especially in today's world, there's a lot of emphasis on starting, a lot of emphasis on entrepreneurialism. And, and that's good because clearly, I think we have a high value for these kinds of attributes and qualities. But over the years that I've been a leader and a pastor and an entrepreneur, uh, Abe, you know, part of my story is I've started lots of different things. I've started churches. I've started coffee shops and nonprofit music venues. I've started One Day's Wages. So I've been around many conversations that deal with starting and entrepreneurialism. And I realize that there just hasn't been a lot of conversations around ending well and then again, transitioning well. And I would say that how we end uh, leaves such a mark on the whole journey as well. And so we want to make sure that uh, we're having conversations in our friendships. We should be having conversations in CKA because of the fact that we know that in our lifetime, there's going to be numerous transitions and chapters that we'll be writing in our life. And so I think simply the lesson is, um, end well, end in a time of health and flourishing, not just for the company or the organization that you're a part of, but even on a personal basis that we're experiencing these things in our own lives. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's part of that legacy as well. You're leaving a legacy as well as passing the baton, knowing that, you know, any organization or any mission is much larger than any single individual. Right. And so, um, uh, so it, it's an important lesson and uh, just through your example, I'm sure many lead, other leaders were encouraged by it. So, um, but a, a, a few years after, um, you are now moving into a new transition into your life, um, into your new role as the president CEO of Bread for the World. Uh, tell me about that journey. How did that come about? Did you ever imagine that you would be running a, another another organization like this? No, I did not. I was envisioning uh, continuing to do one day's wages, which is something that I will continue to do. But I've really settled into a really uh, kind of a nice group. You know, I've been traveling a lot, encouraging leaders around the world, uh, speaking in numerous places. Um, I've also been enjoying the outdoors and hiking and fishing and things of that nature. Never imagined that I would be leaving Seattle. Uh, but uh, just recently, I made a decision to accept uh, an invitation to become the president CEO of a Christian advocacy organization based in Washington, D.C. So we'll be neighbors uh, shortly, very soon, once we get to travel again. Um, and Bread for the World is probably one of the more influential Christian advocacy organizations in the country. And it's a collective Christian voice that seeks to urge uh, our nation's lawmakers to look at policies and programs and structures uh, to be more uh, merciful, compassionate, empowering, more dignifying for those who are poor and hungry and vulnerable in our nation and around the world. Uh, and so for me and my wife, we felt like in our next big chapter, we wanted to double down on our convictions about using our gifts, our voices, our lives uh, to be a megaphone for uh, the issues that impact the poor and hungry. And so we'll continue to do that with one day's wages through direct relief and then with bread for the world as we become advocates for the poor and hungry. 
this role is somewhat different from any of the roles that you've had before. Now you're actually dealing with decision makers, policy makers, and trying to persuade them. They're now your constituents. I'm, I'm wondering, um, what prepared you for this role? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, honestly, there are lots of new muscles that I'm going to have to learn as a result of this new position. Um, things that deal with policies, things that deal... Like just today, if I can give you a glimpse, a snapshot of the meetings that I've had today, we've had meetings dealing with IMF, about debt relief. We've had meetings dealing with SNAP programs, about EBT, electronic benefits programs. We've had conversations today about how our nation and the world is responding to COVID-19 and how we can be, again, advocating for different programs and communities. Uh, it has been overwhelming. Um, and so in some ways, uh, I would say that while my past has been central to my preparation, there's also lots more that I'll need to learn as well. But a couple things, when I look back on my life, I again think about uh, my experience stretching myself as a theater major. I look back now as someone that struggled with stuttering and public speaking. That has helped prepare me as a, as a pastor and, and theologian uh, to be able to, again, learn from the scriptures, from the Bible, because we're a Christian organization, and to be able to give people a theological framework about the why we should care about certain things as a pastor that has been ministering to the needs, the, the real holistic needs of people, uh, that has prepared me to, again, think about how I can connect with those who are poor and hungry around our world and nation. And certainly the work with One Day's Wages is a direct connection. Um, what will be new is just to be able to, again, meet with lawmakers, congressmen and congresswomen, senators, uh, on the occasion uh, to uh, have meetings with uh, representatives of the administration. Uh, and so certainly for those who are listening to this, uh, any practical advice, but even prayers would be very much appreciated. Uh, I have a final couple of questions. You've been very generous with your time. Um, I'm wondering if you have any role models uh, imagine you'll say you reference Jesus Christ a number of times, but aside from Jesus Christ, do you have other role models that uh, that you follow? Sure. You know, I know this sounds like a, um, a trite answer, but I think it's really important for me to name them and then to share why. And I want to just compose myself so that I don't get too emotional and start crying lest you become uh, develop a reputation of being a Barbara Walters, Abe. I want to be careful. Um, but I, you know, I would say my mom and dad uh, are foremost influential role models in my life. Uh, having gone from a stage in my teenage years where they were uh, the villains, my nemesis, my enemies, who I blamed for my identity struggles and problems. And at a later, more mature age, to look back and just be absolutely compelled by their tenacity, their commitment, their perseverance, their passion, their love for their children. Um, I don't think I could ever articulate 
adequately how much they've inspired me in my life. So that would be uh, two of the most significant role models. Uh, two more for the sake of time I'll just share is obviously Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is someone that inspires me. Uh, yes, partly because he was a pastor. Yes, because he was a Christian. But I think, again, it was just his conviction that uh, our faith is not something that we engage in for a 90-minute service on a Sunday it's not something that we attend, but it's how we exist, how we live, how we engage, how we seek to use uh, our, our views, our faith, to especially love our neighbors, including and especially those who are particularly vulnerable. And the last person that I'll share uh, is someone that um, you know I had a, the privilege of writing about in my latest book, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk. Uh, it's tragic that her life was cut so short, but uh, Yu Kwan Son uh, is a Korean activist that was very prominent in the March 1st movement uh, against, at that time, the imperial Japanese colonial rule of Korea. And I didn't know about her story when I was young, but as I've grown in my years, and more connected to my identity and my Koreanness, uh, that pride and joy, not in a, a nationalistic way, but in a, in a healthy patriotic way, uh, I've come to learn more about her story. And she was also a, a believer, a Christian, who was able to synthesize, yes, her faith, and then her convictions about compassion and justice. And I am just so compelled by this young woman. Um, I, I think she was only 17 or 18 years old when she was martyred uh, while she was in jail. But this young woman that many of us probably don't know about, particularly Korean Americans. She was one of the most pivotal, influential figures uh, in the liberation of Korea. And so she's one of my role models as well. Well, final question. I think this is a great segue um, after uh, your uh, sharing of these inspirational stories. I mean, if you could talk to your 19 or 20 year old self what would you advise uh, the young Eugene Cho? Oh, man. Well, I would first say, um, dear 18-year-old Eugene, get over it. You're not going to become an NBA player. Uh, that would be one. Uh, I was so set on becoming the first Asian-American NBA player. It didn't happen. Uh, it stopped when I stopped growing at five, six and a half. But I would say, just earnestly, more seriously, I think what I would say, especially now, uh, I'm turning 50 years old in a couple months. I would say, uh, I would tell Eugene that it's a marathon and to be prepared to run a marathon. I think sometimes when I was younger, I was just so set on sprinting as hard as I could I didn't have a perspective, any depth that went beyond me, myself, and I, or any perspective about something that lasted longer than what I was going through. And I realized that if it's a marathon, there's just a series of hundreds and thousands of micro transitions and then numerous major transitions that, and I would just tell a younger version of myself to get ready to run the marathon that the entire race matters. Um, that's what I would say to a younger version of myself. 
Well, thank you very much, uh, Eugene, for your time. And we will certainly watch very earnestly and root for you as you start your new chapter at your the organization Bread for the World. Uh, thank you for uh, sharing your life and your wisdom with us. Thank you very much. And I look forward to uh, hopefully meeting with others uh, in the CKA community in the years to come. We look forward to have you in our community. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoy this interview with Eugene Cho about his life, his ministry, and his perspectives about navigating faith and politics. Well, thank you again for listening to this episode of the Korean American Perspectives podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast and visit our website at councilka.org. Plus, if you like what you're hearing, please give us a five star on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And special thanks to our faithful podcast producer, Kevin Koo, who is the Oz behind the curtain, masterminding the technical aspects of this show and always making me sound like a rock star. Thanks, Kevin. Well, please join us next week again for another exciting and wonderful episode of the Korean American Perspectives podcast. Thank you for tuning into the Korean American Perspectives podcast. Head over to councilka.org for the show notes of this episode and see exciting upcoming programs at CKA. That's councilka.org.